see you on this beautiful summer morning that we have together. If you want to be making your way to your seats, we're going to get together get together, begin in just a minute. So I want to greet those of you here in the sanctuary and those of you who are watching from home. We are grateful that we get to worship the Lord together. Now, just a few announcements as we begin this morning. First of all, to our kids. We have kids worship normally during the sermon for first to fourth grade. Today, because of the nature of the topic we're addressing as we continue to work through the Ten Commandments and God's Law, we're going to provide kids worship for first through sixth grade today. So parents, it's your choice. Your kids are welcome to stay with you. But again, as we tackle the seventh commandment and the nature of that topic, if you'd rather for your fifth and sixth graders to go to kids' worship today, they will be able to do that today. For kids who go to kids' worship right before the sermon, after we do a prayer time, they'll go out those white doors right there to the office hallway. And then Seth, Rhoda, Beck, and Megan are going to be working with them today, and they'll take your kids back to the gym building for kids' worship today. One thing going on today as well, we have a prayer gathering, 4 o'clock in this room. If you'd like an opportunity to gather with some other believers, to pray, to intercede for one another, to pray for our church, to pray for our city, to pray for the nation, to pray for missions, pray for the world. It was a great chance to do that at four o'clock today here in the sanctuary. What other activity coming up this week? Want to make you aware for our men. There's a trail hike and devotional outside on Tuesday evening. It'll be at Auburn University, Montgomery. There are trails. That's not the paved trails on the campus. This is the woods behind the campus. They have several miles of trails back in the wilderness behind the campus, and we'll meet there at the trailhead. Um, there behind the baseball field, it's off a gravel road. We'll meet there and we'll go for a several mile hike through the woods together, pausing along the way to read God's word, to talk about it, and we'll end with a time to pray for one another. And so the details are on the church website, on our blog, and on Facebook, so go check that out. It'll show you exactly where to park and where to meet us. One more announcement for the kids. Vacation Bible School is coming, but we're doing it different this year. We're not doing it during the weekdays. We're doing it over five Sundays. So for boys and girls, you'll have the same length of time. It'll be 9 to 12 on Sunday mornings over five weeks, beginning on Sunday, July 11th. So we're just about a month away. It'll go through August 8th. You'll have your worship rally. You will have missions time. You will have your teaching. You'll have your crafts, your recreation, your lesson, everything you would normally do. We're going to do it over five Sundays to get you ready for the new school year with a special vacation Bible school called Concrete and Crane. So we're excited about that. I'm going to take just a minute and give you an update on what's going on with the elder team at Gateway so you know how to be praying for us and know what's happening. So Greg Teal is one of our elders. He's going to come give you an update about what's going on with the elders. So one of, excuse me. So one of the... uh, one of the things we do as elders, uh, one of our main roles, obviously, is to, to shepherd uh, the church. Uh, and, and really, the biggest thing we do is to serve you, uh, to be servants to you. And one of the ways that we do that is by really devoting ourselves to the word and prayer. And that's really what the, the Lord has called us to do as elders in the church, uh, biblically. Uh, and one of the things we want to do is we want to communicate regularly with you. Uh, we want to be totally transparent about what we're talking about, uh, the things that are on our plate, so that you can know how to pray for us, uh, but you can also know that we're here uh, working on your behalf. Uh, And one of the things I want to update you on, in 2021, when we began to meet as a a group of elders, we really set up a theme, an overarching theme for 2021 and above, and that was to set foundations. We wanted to make sure that, that how we meet together as a family and the things we do here at Gateway are truly biblically based and that we are all together in unity as a group of elders as we walk together and that we're in unity as a church as we walk together uh, in these areas and we actually have had several extended times together we we meet weekly at 6 30 i'm sorry at 6 a.m uh, on wednesday mornings but uh, we're going to be meeting monday night uh, tomorrow night for about four hours or so 
and we've had some of these extended times so we can take times to really walk more deeply through some of these uh, uh, areas. And I want to just share a few of these areas with you that we're currently talking about. Uh, one is uh, the music ministry. Uh, and, and really an initiative that's happened is every Wednesday night, Grady and Seth are getting with this group of folks up here. And they're actually walking through, and I brought the book, uh, Worship Matters. And this is a book that really uh, cuts to the, uh, uh, both the theology and the practical aspects of music ministry in the life of the church. And this group has been excited about that, uh, and we're excited about that. And as they walk through this, our goal is, number one, to build unity on this team. Another goal is to knit their hearts together. And we're just, we're just so blessed to have this team up here with us uh, week after week. Uh, and this is a process we want to set some solid foundations in. Uh, another is deacon ministry. Uh, and one of the things we've been doing is having a lot of conversations about what is the shape of deacon ministry here at Gateway. And we have started going through a book, and we're going to be talking about this. It's called Deacons by the Nine Marks Ministry, which really talks about some of the practical things, the biblical and practical aspects of deacon ministry in the life of the church. And so we'll be talking about that because we want to, we actually want to serve our deacons well uh, in this. And, and by the way, we have an amazing group of men serving as deacons in this church today. And we're just so grateful uh, for them. Another area is youth ministry. Uh, we've really been blessed as of late to have just a host of volunteers that have, that have come together and are walking with our youth. Uh, CJ's been heading that effort and organizing that and bringing that all together. And it's just really been a blessing. But over 2021, we're going to be taking a look at, really, what does youth ministry look like biblically in the life of our church? And we want to think deeply about that. And we want to set some foundations in that area. Uh, and another thing as elders, uh, each week that we meet, we've been going through a book called Lead. It's by Paul David Tripp. Uh, and this is a book that really just unveils your heart. It really talks about the fact that it reminds us about the gravity of what we do uh, as elders in the church and how we're called to serve you. But it also reminds us that we as a group are broken people uh, and we're in need of the gospel every day. And we want to be transparent with each other as elders first in our lives. And we want to minister to one another and be accountable to one another so that we can lead you well, so that we can shepherd you well. And so this has been, in fact, we were just uh, did a chapter recently on warfare just to remind ourselves that, that all of us as believers, we live in a cosmic struggle and the spiritual battle is real and we need each other. Um, one of the things we've adopted as a group of elders is kind of almost a, uh, let's see, what did, I, what did I call it here? Um, a theme of our elder team. And the theme is this, and this would be good for any believer but that we really desire to be humble, approachable, and teachable. And we want to be that way with each other, but we also want to be that way with you. Uh, and so just as a reminder, I'd, I'd ask the elders to, uh, to stand up, if those that are here today. I want you to know who your elders are. And these men are committed to serve you. And we're here for you. And so that any time you have any questions, any subject you want to talk about, a need that you have, please, we want to be approachable and we want to be teachable as well. And so that's kind of an update on, on where we are, but appreciate your prayers for our time uh, tomorrow night as we gather to talk about some of these subjects. Thank you.
but that data stacks of books. It's, um, we're thankful that we get to study and pursue the Lord together and just grateful for the opportunity to shepherd you guys. Next, I want to do something that's always fun for us. I want to introduce some of our new members to you guys. God has just blessed Gateway with people continue to come and visit and people who have recently joined and people who are still in membership process. But we have several we want to introduce this morning as new members. So guys, it's not scary. I promise it's a sweet group. So when I call your name, just come stand across the front, okay? So Mackenzie Acosta, Kevin and Amy Lynn Blake, Abigail Boyd, John and Ann Cordell, and Drake Patton. You guys come on down to the front, stand across the front here. Yeah, I promise it's not a scary group. I get to look at them every Sunday. See, they're smiling at you. <laughs> so I just want to tell you who these are people are, and also just to remind you how our membership process works at Gateway, that when people have been visiting for a while, the first step is they do a Discover Gateway class. They come to my house and have a meal, and we get to know them, talk about the history of Gateway, talk about what we believe, talk about how to connect here, and then if they feel led to pursue membership, they meet with an elder one-on-one. That's not too scary, because you just saw the elder standing up. It's a great group of guys who love the Lord, and they share their story of God's grace, and that's one of the fun things. We have heard a lot of their stories of how God has rescued them from their sin and how God is changing them, and then they get their questions answered, then it goes to you, the congregation, for approval, and then they stand here before you today, not to be voted on, because you've already affirmed them as new members. So let me just, as I call your name, just wave it every first. Mackenzie is right, where's, there, okay, there you go. Mackenzie is a student at AUM, also works at a local law firm, and she's plugged in with our college group. Um, down here you have Kevin and Amy Lynn Blake right here in the middle. <clears throat> Kevin is an engineer and Amy Lynn is a realtor. And they have a long history of serving their churches faithfully and serving in leadership roles. And we're so thankful that God has brought them here. Um, down then we have Abigail Boyd. Abigail is a nurse at Baptist South. She's also plugged in with our college and young adult group and has found a great community there. <clears throat> On the other end, we have John and Ann Cordell here. And so glad to have them back. They actually... If you remember back as members of Gateway who saw the email, they got approved for membership about a year ago. <laughs> We're so thankful in the providence of God. They, they got approved for membership, and then John had a work accident, and then COVID hit them. And, I mean, they have had a rough year, but God in his grace has sustained them. And we are just so thankful that last week they've been able to join us back in person. We just rejoice that God has you guys here, John and Ann. And then last, we have Drake Patton over here. Drake is also a college student at AUM. He is a track runner, so he could probably outrun almost everyone in the room except for his roommate, Andrew Mingus, over there. So I don't know. Maybe Seth could outrun him. I'm not sure. But, you know, he's quite the runner on this. And he's gotten really plugged into the life of the church, not only with college ministry, but he's, he did the last men's backpacking trip with us and getting connected with the adult men of the church. And so it's just fun to see who God has brought together. So would you join me in welcoming our new members here at Gateway? Okay, guys, I'm going to make your way back to your seat. Thanks for coming up to the front here. And I'd encourage you guys, if you don't know them, when the service is over, kind of, you, you, can, you can kind of stalk them and see where they go to sit, right? Okay? When the service is over, go introduce yourself to them. Get to know them. Go invite them over for a meal or a cup of coffee. I'd love for you to get to hear what I hear, the stories of God's grace. It's so much fun to see how God has been working in their life. We have one more family that has joined, but they are out of town today. We'll introduce them to you next week. But one last thing, speaking of membership, if you've been visiting Gateway and want to learn more, in four weeks we have our next Discover Gateway. That is a lunch at my house after the worship service and about an hour, hour and a half class after that, talking through who we are as a church so you can learn who you've been visiting with and who you've been worshiping with. And so we'd love for you to come be part of that. We need to know if you want to come. So if you'll just see me, see any of the staff members or contact um, the church office if you'd like to be part of that. There's no commitment to that. You can just come and be part um, without making any promise of joining. It's a chance to come explore who we are as a church. Now, as we prepare our hearts to sing to the Lord this morning, can I ask you to stand, please? I want to read to us. 
from God's word. I'm going to read this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 31 here. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright as he. Friends, we get to sing this morning to the God of faithfulness. We get to worship the faithful ones. And I do pray that this will be our prayer this morning. We're going to be singing lines like, God, open up my eyes and wonder. Show me who you are. Fill me. Friends, let's not just go through the routine of singing lyrics. We are praying to the Lord as we're singing these songs. Lord, we want you to open up our eyes. We want you to give us wonder. We want, us to, we want to see who you are. Fill us. Let that be your prayer as we worship the Lord this morning. This will be our endless song. 
Christ is risen from the grave. 
Philippians 2.9 Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father i 
healing in Christ. We find comfort in Christ. He is our refuge in times of need. He is our strong tower in who we can find comfort and peace and shelter. Redeemer, my healer, Lord, oh my. 
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity that we can gather here together as a body of believers, Lord, and thank you that you remind us the, the reason that we are here, Lord, and gathered together because of your great name. Lord, I pray that we would focus on that as we're here today, Lord, and as we go throughout the week, Lord, that uh, you've placed us here in this place, not for ourselves, but Lord, to reflect and point back to you and your greatness, Lord. Lord, we thank you for the body of believers you've given us here. Lord, we pray specifically for the senior adults here in our body, Lord. We thank you that you have brought them here together at this time in their lives, Lord. And I pray that as they are fellowshipping among us, Lord, that that they would be strengthened, encouraged, and that their gifts would be used to serve the body here and serve one another. Lord, we thank you for the missions opportunities that we have that are so great here in our local community. Lord, and we thank you that, that there's ministries that are working hard to advance your kingdom here in this community. Lord, we thank you for the Montgomery Baptist Association Love Loud Montgomery program. We pray for Donna McCullough as they minister to those in need with food and clothing. Most importantly, Lord, as they share the gospel in this community. Lord, we thank you for uh, Pastor Finley over at South Lawn Baptist Church. We thank you that you have placed them there to minister, they minister to that community in West Montgomery. Lord, I pray that they would be faithful to the word and that they would reach the community around them with the gospel. Lord, we pray for uh, our brothers and sisters in Haiti uh, as COVID has uh, come back in that area. Lord, we pray for them as their hospitals are full and that there are restrictions that are being placed on church meetings. Lord, we pray that you would eradicate this virus, that you would remove it from the, from the earth. And Lord, we pray that you would give wisdom to the churches and our partner, Pastor Mark, on what to do as they navigate these uh, difficult times in their country. Lord, we pray for your mission as it reaches global. Lord, we pray for the women at a refugee camp in Ogadugu, Burkani Faso. We pray that the missionary women who are teaching these women how to make soap for income for their families, uh, we pray for that ministry. We also pray that, uh, that you will reach them with the gospel and that we will see revival break out in this camp, Lord. We thank you for offering that has been given today, uh, both here on campus and online. We pray that we would be 
good stewards of these funds as we use them for your kingdom purposes, Lord. And Lord, we thank you for Pastor Grady, and we pray that you would give us ears to hear uh, what you are saying to us through, through the message he has prepared. We thank you that he has been faithful to study and to learn what you want us to hear today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And boys and girls, first to sixth grade, you are welcome to head out those doors to kids' worship with Mr. Seth and Miss Megan. There you go. Fun group today. We'll find Exodus chapter 20, Gateway family. Exodus chapter 20. We are continuing our study of being rooted, of being grounded in the unchanging Word of God. And we're looking at the Ten Commandments. We're spending these weeks right now, the beginning of the summer, looking at the Ten Commandments. I just want to remind us when we look at these, these commandments reveal to us the unchanging will of God. And that's really important for the topic we're coming to today. This is unchanging truth. Regardless of how it's perceived, regardless of how it's accepted, regardless of how the world thinks on this topic, this is the unchanging will of God. Now last week we saw the sixth commandment from Exodus chapter 20 verse 13. It was the commandment, you shall not murder. And of all the commandments, it's probably the most agreed upon commandment, right? And that's the one that Christians and non-Christians alike can unify around and be like, yeah, well, we shouldn't murder. Today we come to Exodus chapter 20, 14, and we go to the other extreme. We come to the most objected to of all of the commandments. This is a command that when we follow this command, we're seen as weird, as prudish, as old-fashioned, and in the world we live in now, sometimes we're seen as hateful and intolerant if we follow the seventh command. What commandment is it? It's the commandment that deals with sex and sexuality. And this command calls us to go in the exact opposite direction of the way the world is headed. Now, friends, the outset, I want to just tell you that I feel the weightiness of teaching this command, perhaps more so than any others we've been looking at in our study of the Ten Commandments, because I recognize that even within this room, many of you carry the weight of pain and hurt related to this command. As we think about today, there's, there's probably four groups of you in here who feel the weightiness of what we're going to be talking about. And I want to recognize what those are and give you something to think about as we go through the, the message today. And then we're going to come back to these four groups at the end and look at what God's Word says specifically to each group. But at the outset, I recognize this morning, first of all, there's some of you who are being tempted right now with sexual sin. Now, maybe many of you in the room right now, you're dealing with temptations towards sexual sin. As we look at God's Word today, the question I want you to be asking is, what do I do when I'm tempted? When I'm tempted, what do I do? There's a second group of you who are here today or watching online, and that's a group of you who are actually enslaved to your sexual sins. And by enslaved, I mean this is an ongoing pattern in your life. You might want to call it a stronghold. You're addicted, if you will, to lust or pornography or adultery or premarital sex, or we could go on and on of the possibilities of that. And so if that's you as we study today, the question for you is, what do you do when you realize your choices are outside the will of God? What do you do when you realize your choices are outside the will of God? Three, though, there's some of you here today who, by God's grace, have gotten free from past sins, but you're really living with the regret for your past sexual sins. You deal with a lot of guilt and shame, and you know well the pain that that has caused. And so the question for you this morning is, what do you do when the enemy accuses you? When, what do you do when the enemy accuses you of things in the past that you've already repented of and God's freed you from? There's a last group that we need to recognize who are here today, and there's some of you who are here who have been hurt seriously by other people's sexual sins. 
You've been betrayed, you've been cheated on, promises have been broken, you've been used, you've been abandoned, molested, raped, harmed by incredible evil. We need to be honest about the pain that you carry. You have deep hurts and wounds. And so the question for you is, what do I do when I've been wronged sexually by someone else? Because a lot of those four, those are all very weighty. Because I know your story is that many of you fall into one of those four groups. And so I recognize this morning the limitation of trying to speak to all four of those groups that are present in this room at this time together. And I realize we can't cover everything that needs to be said or should be said on that. But with that said, there's two things I hope we can do this morning. Number one, I hope we can lay a foundation from God's word. I want to see from God's word what God's will is because God's will is good and pleasing and perfect. But second of all, I want to start a conversation because many people, when it comes to this topic, the church has been silent on it. Many of you may never have been in a church service where the pastor's talking about sex from the pulpit, right? This is not something the church has been good at addressing biblically over the years across this whole country. And so I want to start a conversation so you know you're not alone. That if you need help to find victory, if you need help to get out of strongholds, if you need help processing wounds from your past, if you need help processing the pain you feel from how people have wronged you, I want us to start a conversation so you know you don't have to face these things alone. So with that in view, I want us to look at the command from Exodus 20. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? This is a very short command like we saw last week. It's just today, just five short words from Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. But I want to read it to us from the English Standard Version. Exodus 20, 14. You shall not commit adultery. Now would you pray with me? Father, we come before you very humbly this morning, recognizing our own weakness, recognizing our own frailty, Lord. And Lord, we feel the weightiness of this command. Lord, we, if not ourselves, all know people who are struggling in the area of their sexuality, who have felt the wounds of this, who are dealing with temptations, who are struggling with addictions. And so Lord, we ask for much grace today. God, that your Holy Spirit will come and will take your unchanging truth. And God, it will be a comfort to those who need comforting today. And it will be conviction to those who need convicting today. And we pray that you could do what only you can do. Bring hope where it's needed and bring correction where it's needed. That Lord, we as your people might be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And thank you. You may be seated. So today our question is quite simply, what does the seventh commandment require? And here's what I want you to see. I'm going to go and tell you at the outset before we explore it. Here's what the seventh commandment requires. God calls us to rely on Him to live a life of sexual purity and faithfulness for our own good and for the good of others. That God calls us to rely on Him. This is not a sermon. Please out say, hear me. This is not a white-knuckle determination. I need to try harder to walk in victory. I need to try harder to deal with my past. I need to try harder. That's not what this is about. This is a call to rely on God's grace to live a life that he has called us to live, a life of purity and a life of faithfulness when it comes to areas of our sexuality. So we'll see this morning, this is so important because it affects our good and affect the good of others. God calls us to rely on him, to live a life of sexual purity and faithfulness for our own good and for the good of others. Now, before we get into the command on this, we need to understand the foundation of the command. This command and the scope of this application only makes sense in the broader context of what this is all about. And so at the outset, I want to tell you something that may sound funny at first. This command is not primarily about sex. You're going, wait, wait, this is about adultery. How is this not about sex? That's not what the focus of this command is about. This command is about protecting the sacredness of marriage. Now, don't miss this. This command is about protecting the sacredness of of marriage. And so if we're going to understand this command and what it includes and why it includes what it does, we have to understand that this command is about marriage. It's about the sacredness of marriage. Now, to see that there's four truths about marriage and sexuality that we need to understand for all this to make sense. So four foundational truths before we look at what this command means in the application. Truth number one, the covenant of marriage is God's idea. 
The covenant of marriage is God's idea. The fact that a man and woman get married is not some evolutionary adaptation to increase our survival rates, okay? It's not something that came out after the fall where God's like, man, the world is all broken and messed up. This is the only way I can fix it. Let's let them get married. That's, that's not how marriage came about. Marriage was created before the fall, before sin even entered the world. Marriage is a foundational part of God's creation that one man and one woman would covenant together for a lifetime, Jesus shows us this in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. Matthew 19, Jesus answers the people he's talking to. He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall, the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus points them back to the creation account. You go back to Genesis 1 and 2. And God made Adam, and God made Eve, and he brought them together in a covenant of marriage before sin entered the world, before anything happened. This was God's foundational thing. Before he made governments, before he made organized religion coming together to worship him, he made marriage. And that's really important for us as we think through marriage and sexual sins and temptation, because since God created it, God is sovereign and has the right to define the parameters of it. We are not free to reimagine how we want it to be. We're not free to alter it. We're not free to say, hey, for me, I'm going to do it this way. God is the creator, and he's the one who tells us how it's to be. So the foundation of the covenant of marriage is God's idea. Number two, God's design in marriage is for the husband and wife to experience oneness. God's design in marriage is for a husband and a wife to experience something we call oneness. You see it right there in Matthew chapter 19, verse 6. They are no longer two, but they are what? One flesh there. What God is doing together will not mean separate. God's plan is what we call oneness. Now, this needs a whole sermon for another day. I feel like that's the whole message today. I'm going to probably say that ten times today. But a whole sermon for another day. There's two things that are essential in a healthy marriage. One is unconditional love. Love is not a feeling. Love is a choice you make to serve another person and care for them. You have to have unconditional love in marriage. But number two, you have to have oneness. And oneness in marriage is very different than love. Oneness in marriage is very conditional. It is the experience of being united together. Oneness in marriage is the experience of being united together and it encompasses all of life. Oneness, there's a mental oneness where you're increasingly understanding each other and filling in each other's sentences, right, in the middle of the conversation because you know each other so well. There's a mental oneness, but there's an emotional oneness where you have that deep bond where you delight in each other's presence, where you delight in being together and you want to spend time together. There's a spiritual oneness where you're pursuing Christ together and you're growing closer together as you pursue Christ. And yes, there is a sexual oneness where you're physically united together. And friends, God's plan in marriage is for there to be oneness between a husband and wife, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and sexually. And let me just give a charge to our married couples. Oneness doesn't happen automatically. It takes intentionality. It takes time. And so you need to be investing in your marriage to be pursuing with intentionalness oneness together. So God's plan from the beginning is the covenant of marriage. That's his idea. Number two, his plan within that covenant of marriage is for the husband and wife to experience oneness. Number three, sex is the culmination of oneness in marriage. Sex is the culmination of oneness in marriage. Sex by itself does not create oneness in marriage, but it's the culmination, the celebration of that oneness. You see that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become, here it is again, one flesh. Now, the very next verse that follows this, and the man and his wife were both ashamed. Hence, sex is a gift from God. But don't miss this, friends. Sex is not about you. In God's plan, sex is a gift to serve your spouse with. It's a gift to serve, not to be served with. So sex is not all about your dreams and your fantasy. Sex is a gift from God to serve your spouse in order to build oneness with your spouse. Friends, that is foundational. We can get that. So much else will make sense. 
Their sexual drives are a gift from God to build oneness in marriage, to serve your spouse with. Number four, then, therefore sex is good and to be enjoyed in the covenant of marriage. Sex is good and to be enjoyed in the covenant of marriage. Friends, don't miss this, that God is the one who made us sexual beings. It's not an accident. This is his design. He designed us the way he did. He gave us our sexual desires. He's the one who made it pleasurable, and he's also the one in his goodness who put the boundaries on it, said only within marriage. And so God's plan is for sex to be enjoyed, but only within the covenant of marriage. Friends, with those four things in place, we see what this is all about. God's plan when it comes to this command is about protecting the sacredness of marriage, this plan that he gave to us for the good of his people. So with that as the foundation, let's look at what the command actually says. Go back to Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. So what are we to avoid in this command? Back in verse 14, he simply says, you shall not commit adultery. So like last week, there's only two words here in the Hebrew. What turns out is five words for us is two words in the Hebrew. It's the word no, and it's the word commit adultery. So literally, literal translation here would be no commit adultery here. Now that, what is, what is adultery then? Quite literally, as it was understood in the Old Testament time, adultery was a sexual relationship that breaks the marriage covenant. Adultery is a sexual relationship that breaks the marriage covenant. That could be a married person has a sexual relationship with someone other than their spouse. That could be a single person having a sexual relationship with someone who's married. So a sexual activity that breaks the marriage covenant and that destroys oneness in the marriage. And friends, this was seen as so serious in the time of Israel, it had the highest possible penalty. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. Now, friends, this is a, what we call a civil command. This is not one of the moral commands. This is for the nation of Israel. Theocracy under God is the head. And so these are not the civil commands don't apply anymore. So this doesn't mean we go kill people who've broken this command. Okay, that was specific for Israel at that time. And though the penalty does not follow into the New Testament era, it does show us the seriousness with which we should view this sin, the seriousness with which we should invest in strengthening our marriages by God's grace. But with all the commands we've seen, the commands are much broader than just quite the the simple thing that we see here. And the same is true here. Think about last week with murder. We all agree murder is wrong. But Jesus was also concerned, not just about murder, but anything that hurt another image bearer of God. And Jesus was concerned to even make sure our heart attitudes were right, that the things that lead to hate, that lead to hurt, don't even happen in our hearts. The same is true here. This command is about protecting the sacredness of marriage. And so God is concerned not just with the act of adultery. He's concerned with anything that destroys the sacredness of marriage. Again, don't miss that. God is concerned about anything that, that destroys the sacredness of marriage. And he's concerned as well about the heart attitudes that lead us down paths that cause harm and cause us to view sex in any way apart from the way that he has given it. So don't you see the scope of this command? We see it even before Jesus' time. In the Old Testament, the other Old Testament laws show how much is in view. We want us to look at a text together. And friends, it's a little bit uncomfortable to read. Let me just say that at the outset. But this is God's word here. And again, as we read this text from Leviticus, again, remember the civil penalties don't apply. So don't get hung up on the fact that people are going to be stoned or burned or things like that, okay? That was specific to the nation of Israel. But I want you to see, even in the Old Testament, that more than just adultery was in view here. So Leviticus chapter 20 Verse 10, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, but the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They surely shall be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes a woman and her mother also, it is depravity. He and they shall be burned with fire. There be no depravity. Among you, one more, if a man lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death, and you shall kill 
the animal. Now, what is going on here in the Old Testament? God is expanding out this command about adultery to forbid multiple sexual partners, to prohibit incest, to prohibit homosexuality. Why? Because all those things that we just kind of awkwardly read, all those are sexual expressions outside of the covenant of marriage. All those are sexual expressions that do not accomplish what God gave the point of sex, to serve your spouse for the sake of oneness. None of those expressions are one man, one woman in a covenantal relationship for wife. Therefore, this command to not commit adultery, even from Leviticus 20, we see prohibits all sexual activity outside of marriage. It's not just about the act of adultery, it's about any sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage. Any sexual activity that does not promote oneness between a husband and a wife is forbidden in the scope of this command. Friends, Jesus doesn't leave it there. Like he did with murder, he raises the bar even higher and takes it to our heart, thoughts, and motivations as well. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, you see it as well. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said you should not commit adultery. Serious, he's quoting Exodus 20 again. But he says, but I say to you, remember he's raising the bar, he's not doing away with the command. He's affirming the command, but he's taking it up a notch. He's saying, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. There's this phrase, lustful intent. It's a word in the Greek that means to covet or to desire something for yourself. It's to covet or to desire something for yourself. The word lustful intent means selfishness. So you see what Jesus has done here? He's saying, yes, I affirm the fact that adultery is wrong. I affirm the Old Testament law that there's to be no sexual expression outside the covenant of marriage. But he says, but I'm going to take it another notch up for you here. This would include sinful sexual thoughts and desires. That not, don't even entertain in your heart sexual desires that are apart from the covenant <coughs> of marriage. So he's saying that everyone who looks at another person, unless it's their spouse, and thinks sexual thoughts about that person or desires to have a sexual relationship with anyone apart from their spouse, they have broken the seventh commandment and committed adultery within their heart and soul. I just want to remind us how God views this sin. Yes, we're not bound to the civil penalties that we saw in Leviticus, but notice how God views these sins. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. He said, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Now just pause right there. Notice the foundation of why God's so serious about this command. He's honoring the sacredness of marriage. The goal of this command is not about sex and not about God being a fuddy-duddy. It's about God holding up with honor marriage. This picture of Christ in this church, this foundational institution he's established. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. There he includes all sexual sins, including sins of the mind and the thoughts. So let's try to bring all that together. Go back to Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. So in light of the Old Testament law, in light of Jesus' teaching, what exactly is forbidden by this? Any sexual activity, whether with others or privately, that's not part of the oneness of marriage. So what is prohibited is any sexual activity expression, whether with others or privately, that's not part of the oneness experience of marriage. Friends, that would include a lot of things. That would include pornography. That would include lustful fantasies and imaginations. That would include adultery, which we often call affairs now. That would include premarital sex, which is often called cohabitating. You get the idea. It's anything that's outside of the covenant oneness experience of marriage. Why? Because it does not accomplish his purpose for sex. Now, like we saw over and over again, the commandments can be stated positively or negatively. So often they're stated negatively just because they're succinct. But you can state it positively as well. So here's the positive side of it. God calls us to live a life of purity and faithfulness. We can say the same thing we've just said. You can say it in the positive way of God calls us to live a life of sexual purity and faithfulness. That means if you're not married, you're not to be sexually active. You're to have a life of purity, trusting in God's grace to abstain from sexual expression. If you're married, you're to have a, a life of sexual faithfulness where you're sexually active only with your spouse and you're committed faithfully to just him or to her. And no other relationship is it to be used. No other way is it to be expressed. 
Now, why does God put this in place? Why would God do this? Again, he's not because he's trying to be some old-fashioned guy up in heaven who's just trying to make us miserable. He does this for our own good and for the good of others. Don't miss this. He gives this command, friends, for our good and for the good of one another. Friends, the reality is when we sin sexually, we hurt ourselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Notice what Paul says to people in Corinth. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Friends, the only sin he tells us to flee from. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person, but the sexually immoral person sins against what? His own what? Do you realize this is the only command in Scripture where you're told your sin is against yourself? And when you sin sexually, you're not only sinning against God and sinning against other people, you're sinning against yourself. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Friends, we hurt ourselves when we sin sexually. Sex is powerful. It is good. But when we unleash that power apart from God's design, it brings destruction throughout our lives. It destroys a person. But not only do we hurt ourselves when we sin sexually, we hurt others when we sin sexually. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 for this is the will of God. Again, friends, this is the unchanging will. No matter how hard this is in the world we live in, this is the unchanging will of God, your sanctification. It's a big word that means your growth in godliness. And what does that include? That you abstain from sexual immorality. That you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor. Not in the passion of the lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And notice this, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Now just pause there. One of the lies of the enemy is that sexual sin is private, doesn't hurt anyone else. And here, God says, through Paul, writing to people in Thessalonica, that we should not be wronging and transgressing our brothers. That when we sin sexually, it is sinning against other people. And then he reminds us that seriously, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things that we've told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. How do you hurt other people when you sin sexually? Well, there's so many ways. Here's just a few. You wrong your spouse if you're married. Because you've broken a promise, you've broken trust, you've destroyed oneness, you've taken what was a gift for them and you've given it to someone else. There's no sin more devastating in marriage than adultery and other forms of sexual sin. It wrongs your spouse. But friends, it also wrongs whoever you commit the sexual sin with. It's going to wrong the person that they are going to marry. If they're single and you're not married to them, you're taking something that belonged to their future spouse. In Israel at the time, adultery was actually associated with theft. They thought of adultery more in terms of stealing something, which I think communicates something to us. When you commit sexual sin with someone apart from, from your spouse, you're taking something that does not belong to you. You're taking something that actually belonged to their future spouse or their current spouse. But it also wrongs the person you're sexually active with. You're using a person for your own desire. You're not treating that person as an image bearer of God. You're using that person for yourself instead of serving them as an image bearer of God. Friends, we even need to say this, that even pornography hurts the person you're viewing. Because if you're looking at people online for your own sexual pleasure, you're not serving them. You're, they're on a path towards destruction and eternal damnation, and you don't care. You're using them on their path to hell for your own pleasure. Many of those you're looking at online are literally enslaved in bondage, and if you're looking at them, you don't care. You're enabling the very vehicle that keeps them trapped. And so it hurts other people. It hurts you. But there's one other way it hurts people. Sexual sin keeps the gospel from going forth. Sexual sin keeps the gospel from going forth. Now follow me on this one. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's all throughout the Bible. There is now. This mystery is profound. I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. 
Is there's so much about marriage, why marriage should be held up in honor. There's so much about marriage that we saw back to the foundation of creation. But one reason God gave marriage is to be a picture of how God relates to his church. Marriage is to show the world who God is and what it looks like for God to be faithful, what it looks like for the, his people to be faithful to him and joyfully submit to him. Marriage is this beautiful picture to help us understand the gospel. And when we sin sexually, we're taking that beautiful picture and we're marring it with selfishness and things that completely are antithetical to the gospel. No wonder Satan attacks it so hard. But can I add as well to that? The sexual sin silences so many people. When people have been struggling with sexual sin, rare are they wanting to go out and talk to their neighbor about Christ. It's the number one thing that keeps men off the mission field. As I've talked to people with the International Mission, one of their mission agencies, the number one thing keeping people off the field is pornography and sexual sin. It's the number one thing that destroys pastoral ministry and leaders in the church is sexual sin. The enemy loves to throw the sin out at us because it hinders the gospel. Because it silences us and because it ultimately mars the picture of Christ and his church. And so therefore God calls us to a life of purity and faithfulness and sexuality for our own good and for the good of others. And that's hard truth, friends. So what do we do with that? Let's go back to those four groups this morning. Let's try to bring this together. I mentioned earlier different ones of you are in different situations. So what do we do if we find ourselves in these situations? Again, I recognize the limitations of these and pray this will just give you a starting point and something to think about that'll lead to other conversations. So first the first group, to those of you who are being tempted by sexual sin, light of all this, what should you do? I want to give you two things to do. Number one, remember what is at stake. When the enemy throws sexual sin at you, throws temptation at you, what do you do? Number one, you remember what is at stake. Because one of Satan's lies he loves is, hey, this is not a big deal. No one will ever know. Everyone does this. The Bible's so outdated. You just have to be who you are. Just, you need to express yourself. No one should make you not be who you really are. You can go through all the lies. Through, friends. Those are lies from the pit of hell. Those are not true. Remember John chapter 8, verse 44, the nature of Satan who tells those things to us? He says, you are your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. It has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character where he is a liar and the father of lies. One thing that Satan does is he tries to deceive us. And we hear those lies that, hey, this is private. No one else will know. This doesn't hurt. Everyone does this. We go on and on. Those are lies from the enemy to try to destroy us and destroy others and hurt the gospel. Friends, remember what is at stake. Sexual sin is never harmless or innocent. It's always destructive. It always wrecks havoc. Number two then. So you remember what's at stake. What do you do? Second of all, you run away from it. You run from the temptation. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. We saw this one earlier, but let's get back to that first line. Flee from sexual immorality. So many other things we're told to resist the temptation. In this one, we're told to flee from. We're to do whatever we can to get away from that temptation so it does not have its way in us. Friends, it is better to be without internet. It is better to not have a smartphone. It is better to not have TV at your home than to be dealing with ongoing temptations on that. It is better to be misunderstood and cut off some relationship or get you out of some situation than to commit adultery. And the good news in this is whenever you're tempted, God is going to give you a way to run away. This is an incredible promise. If you are struggling with temptation, you need to write this down, memorize it, stick it on your dashboard of your car, put it on your phone background. But 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, he says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Notice this. God is what? God is faithful. We just sang about this morning. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Notice this. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of what? escape that you'll be able to endure. Friends, do you realize that though the temptations seem strong and difficult, God in his sovereignty has already filtered out the temptations, and God's not going to let Satan tempt you in any way that you can't handle by his grace. 
That means when we choose to sin, we're choosing to sin because God has given us a way out. So friends, if you're struggling with temptation, own this verse. God provides a way of escape and God is faithful, not just to a sexual sin, but with any temptation you face, it does not have to overcome you. God's grace is greater. Friends, if that's you, if you're one who's, who's struggling with temptation, I want you to think on this verse. But also, there's a book in the Resource Center I want to recommend. Since we already recommended some books at the beginning from Greg, I'm going to give you some book recommendations here at the end also. There's a great book out there called Killing Sin Habits. If you're struggling with temptation, read the book Killing Sin Habits. Now, second group possibly in the room here, those of you who are actually enslaved to sexual sin, you have addictions and strongholds, whether, again, it's pornography or premarital sex or lustful fantasies, whatever it is, but you're, this has become a stronghold in your life. What should you do? I want to give you two things as well. Number one, repent. Number one, repent. Friends, anytime we're choosing to sin and we know what sin is from God's word, we're offending God. And don't miss this, friends. Sin is us shaking our fist at God, saying, God, not your way, but mine. And so when we hear God's word, flee from sexual morality, when we hear God's words, so there's going to be no adultery, no sexual morality, and no lustful fantasies, and all these type things. When we choose to do that, we're saying, God, I know you said that, but I don't care because I want my way instead. And so in that place, when we realize that we've been doing that as a pattern, we need to repent and turn back to him. Friends, if we are in Christ, we do not have to be bound to those sins. It was a great thing for us to realize in Romans chapter 6, verse 11. If this is, you're in this group, you need to own this verse as well. So you must also consider yourselves. Now stop right there. That means think differently. Whatever that sin is that you're enslaved to, Paul is saying, don't keep thinking that way. You're not bound to this. You don't have to do this. If you are in Christ, you're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12. So therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body to make it obey its passions. Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as has been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. So friends, we are not bound to our sins. We need to repent of our sins and trust God's grace to forgive us and to change us. So repent. But the second thing I'd encourage you to do if you found yourself bound to these sexual sins, number two, seek help from your Christian community. Seek help from your Christian community. James chapter 5, verse 16 Therefore, confess your sins to who? To one another. Okay, now that's hard on any level. It's especially hard on this particular area. Confess your sins to one another and pray for them that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Friends, over the 20 plus years that I've served in different pastoral ministry roles in Auburn and here, one thing I've discovered is I've walked through many people through different types of sexual sins and tried to counsel them through that. I've only ever met one person in the last 20 years who has overcome sexual sins and addictions and temptations outside of community. One. There's one guy who just threw an amazing prayer warrior who, unlike most of us I know how to pray, he found freedom on his own in private. I've never met anyone else who's found freedom from sexual sin just on their own alone. God has given us a grace gift of community, and he tells us in James, one way we find that grace is we confess our sins to one another. So I'd encourage you, if you're enslaved to sexual sin, seek help in community. Be willing to humble yourself, admit your struggles, and find a mature, trusted friend. And by mature, trusted friend, that means someone else who's not struggling. It's not going to help you to get with a, a buddy or a friend who, who's doing the same sins you're doing and just try to encourage each other each week to do better. That's not going to give you help. Find someone who God has given victory to to help you walk through that. Friends, if that's you, I also want to recommend a book to you that's in the Resource Center. There's a great book out there called Finally Free by Heath Lambert. Now, it's a book specifically about pornography struggles, but you could take out the word pornography and put a blank there, and any type of sexual sin could go into that book. And finally, free, he shows you how understanding God's grace gives you freedom. He shows you how to use accountability. You can just go down. It's one of the best books I've found on freedom from sexual sin. It's in the Resource Center as well. So if you're one who's enslaved to your sins, repent and be willing to get help in communion. Number three, how about those of you who are dealing with regret for your past sexual sins? 
You found grace that God has changed you, that you're no longer who you used to be, that you're new in Christ, but you keep feeling this regret, this guilt of things you did in your past. What do you do? Two things. Number one, realize where it comes from. Realize where it comes from. God does not bring guilt. God brings conviction. And those are really, really different things. God brings conviction to bring us to repentance. And when we repent, God forgives us and embraces us, and he doesn't continue to be like, don't forget what you did last week. God doesn't do that to us. When he forgives, he puts it aside there. Guilt comes from Satan, friends. In fact, the word Satan wasn't actually one of the names for Satan originally. Satan's technical name is Lucifer, one of the angels who rebelled against God and led the rebellion and fell. The name Satan is actually a Hebrew word that means accuser, literally accuser. And as you look in the Old Testament, starting in Genesis, Satan's actually called Hasatan, the accuser in Hebrew. And as he, Jewish history progresses, they begin to drop the ha, the the at the beginning. He just begins to be known as accuser, and eventually begins to become a title, a name for him. But it was actually a description of him that he is the accuser on that. That means when you feel guilt for things you've repented of and that God's forgiven you of, it's not coming from God. It's coming from the accuser. So remember where it comes from. Number two, remember how God sees you. Remember how God sees you. I try to remind us of this, and I try to remind all of us of this over and over again. If we are in Christ, God doesn't see us and covered in our sins. He sees our sins paid for on the cross by Christ, and he sees all of Christ's righteousness covering us. We talk a lot about the blood of Jesus covering us. That means when the Father looks at us, he's not like, oh man, look, there's that person who did that over and over again. He sees the Christ righteousness. So realize where it comes from and realize how God sees you. I want you to see both of those truths in one particular text. Zechariah chapter 3. We go to Old Testament prophet here. In Zechariah 3 verse 1. This is he's a whole sermon for another day also. But Zechariah 3 1. Zechariah gets a vision of what's happening in heaven. And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to do what? To accuse him. So there's Satan the accuser standing there. You have this glimpse of what's going on in heaven. In verse 2, what happened? And the Lord says to Satan, so before Joshua, who's guilty of sin, who's covered in his unrighteousness, stand there. Here's Zechariah watching on. Before Satan can even bring the accusations, picture the courtroom scene. Satan's ready to accuse. But God says to Satan, I'm going to give you my modern English version of this verse. God looks at Satan and says, shut up. Okay? That's the kind of the modern English paraphrase that. God says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who's chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from afar? So before Satan can even bring the accusation to God, God tells him to stop. I'm not going to entertain it. Why? Not because Joshua's sin-free. Joshua's not sin-free. But he silenced him because God has chosen Joshua. He's chosen Israel. God points back to election to silence the accusations of the enemy. But this doesn't minimize the fact that Joshua sinned. Now, Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. So there's no overlooking fact. There was sin here, but God's not going to listen to Satan's accusations. Why? Because of verse 4. Friends, this is incredible. And the angel, which many scholars believe is pre-incarnate Christ here. You'll see why in just a minute. This is perhaps Christ standing here looking at Joshua. And the angel said to those who are standing around him, remove the filthy garments from him. Symbolic of removal of sin. He said, behold, I have taken your iniquity from you. Talk about forgiveness. And I have clothed you with pure vestments. But here Satan doesn't have any grounds to accuse Joshua before God because God, because Christ himself has taken the sin. And it gets even better. Now Zechariah is watching from earth and Zechariah shouts out, let them put a clean turban on his head. So you got this guy on earth watching this scene in heaven and he shouts out, put a turban on his head. Why is this important? Because the turban is what the high priest wore to serve God. They had an inscription on the front that's holy to the Lord. The, the priest would put this on and go into the temple to serve the Lord. Friends, one of Satan's strategies with so many Christians today is he gets you so bound up in what regrets from the past that you get sidelined and don't serve the Lord today. You think, I can't serve the Lord if they only knew what happened 10 years ago, last week, whatever. 
Notice what happens here. Zechariah cries out, put the turban on his head. In other words, restore him to service to God. So what does Jesus do? They put the turban back on Joshua's head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Friends, if you have past regrets, but you've repented of them, and you've dealt with them with the gospel, friends, you are not sidelined in God's kingdom economy. You are able to be used by the Lord. But yet he calls us then to walk in freedom going forward. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 6. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And we're going to stop there. We could go on with that text. But notice the command here is to walk in his ways. Friends, so if you are one who has struggled with guilt, remember it doesn't come from God. If you've repented of it, God's dealt with it on the cross. But remember how God sees you. You stand forgiven. You stand clothed because God has set you aside. Now, don't want to overlook giving a book recommendation. If you're in this group and you're dealing with guilt, there's a great book out there called Putting Your Past in its place, putting your past in its place, moving forward in freedom and forgiveness. He deals with how to handle different areas of your past, but one is how do you handle your guilty past? How do you handle the past where you've sinned and you have regret from it? It's a great resource if you're struggling with that. But there's one last group I want to address this morning. Those of you who've been hurt by other people's sexual sin, and there are people here at Gateway who you carry wounds today because you've been hurt by other people's sexual sin, whether it's abuse or a betrayal or all these things. And friends, at the outset, I want to say to you, when you've been abused sexually by other people, it's not your fault. So, many, so much in our culture tries to put the blame on the person who's the victim, and that's just not right, friends. So what do you do when you have been wronged by others? There's so much can be said. I'm going to give you just five simple things you can do if that's you. Number one, lament your pain to God. Lament your pain to God. Don't hide it. Friends, so, it seems so often in the church world, we, have to, we feel this pressure to put on this facade, even when we talk the word in prayer and pretend everything's okay. We don't have to pretend everything's okay. We can lament our pain to God. God knows about it, and he invites us to be real and talk to him about it. I want you to see Psalm 55, verse 1. Now, this is not about sexual abuse, but this is David dealing with, the, with sins of other people that have harmed him. He says, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint, and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they drop trouble upon me. In anger, they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. This is a man after God's own heart, friends. And he's dealt with injustice at the hands of other people. And he's real before the Lord in his prayers. And he can lament to God about his pain. And friends, I just want to remind you, as you lament to God the pain you've walked through, remember God is a God who has himself suffered. He entered into human experience, was born, walked as a perfect man, and yet faced injustice far greater than anything we'll ever face and was killed on the cross for us. He understands your suffering. So lament your pain to God. Number two, remember justice will come to those who wronged you. Remember that justice will come to those who wronged you. So many people who are victims of sexual sin, it feels like the other person got away with it. There's no consequences. But just remember, no sin will, be, will get away. People will get away with it. They will give an answer to God one day. Romans chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his work. So friends, even if the person who wronged you feel like God always just clean and nothing ever happened, then they will have to answer before a holy God one day. Number three, find your identity and belonging to God. Find your identity and belonging to God. For instance, one of the challenges for people who've been victims of any type of abuse is that abuse begins to define them. You now it's obviously shaped you, but it you don't have to let it define you. Realize who you are before God. Zephaniah chapter 3, it's an amazing verse if you're struggling to understand God's love for you and struggling to find your identity in God. Zephaniah three seventeen. the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. 
He will quiet you by his love and he will exult, exult over you with loud singing. Friends, if you are in Christ, do you realize your creator sings over you with gladness? He loves you that much. And if you've been hurt by other people, even though people have been unfaithful to you, remember God will never be unfaithful. Deuteronomy 7, 9, we sang about God's faithfulness earlier, but know therefore the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Friends, if you've been wronged by others, find your identity in the one who has a faithful covenant love and who will never wrong you. Number four, receive God's comfort. God is there to comfort you as you walk through the pains of life. God is holding you and wants to pour out his comfort on you. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercy and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Friends, if you've been wrong, notice that God wants to comfort you. Number five, last one, guard yourself against bitterness. Guard yourself against bitterness. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now, friends, if that's you, obviously, those five things are just a starting point. There's a lot more that needs to be said. And I want to recommend two books to you. There's one that's the same one I just mentioned, Putting Your Past in Its Place. There's a whole section there about your innocent past. What's happened when you've received the harm from other people. It's got some great counsel. There's also a great book in the Resource Center from Tim Keller called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. If you're walking through, it doesn't have to be this, but any type of trial, walking with God through pain and suffering is an amazing resource to help you understand the sovereignty of God and the suffering of God and how those two truths, that God is sovereign and God himself has suffered, how those two truths together will bring you to a place to find comfort as you grieve the pains of the brokenness of this life. Friends, whatever group you're in, whatever's happened to your past, I've got good news for us. That is, you're made by God, you're loved by God, and he has a purpose for you. And God's desire for every single one of us is to find freedom, to find healing, and to find hope, and God loves to pour out his grace to do that to us. Now, what does that look like when he gives us his grace? Part of that is he gives us his Holy Spirit. And so for some of us, we need the Holy Spirit to give us some conviction for sins that we have just continued in our life, for strongholds we've allowed to form. For some of us, we need the grace that the Holy Spirit brings when he gives us strength to flee, when temptations that you've given into in whatever area of your life, you all of a sudden find new strength to run away from those, to find that way out. For some of you, the grace that the Holy Spirit needs to bring to you is a reminder that you're forgiven and that God doesn't look at your sins anymore, and you need the Holy Spirit to remind you that day by day. For some of you, the grace you need through the Holy Spirit is to know that God is holding you and loves you and is faithful to you regardless of what brokenness you've walked through. But for all of us, whatever stage we're in, don't forget, God loves to pour out His grace through His church. That God made us to need community, and He loves to pour out His grace through one another. And so all these things, my plea to you is don't sit alone with your sin, don't sit alone with your struggles. Don't sit alone with your grief or your brokenness or your wounds. God invites you not only to bring it to him in prayer, but to bring it before others. And so I want to encourage you this week to have the conversation you need. Maybe it's with your spouse. Maybe it's with some trusted, mature friends. Maybe it's one of the elders. You saw the elders stand up earlier in the service, but maybe you need to reach out to one of your church leaders and say, hey, I've never dealt with this sin in my life, or hey, I've never dealt with this pain in my life. Would you help walk through this with me? That's what we desire to do by God's grace. But in all that, friends, I want to challenge you to run to Jesus. Remember that Jesus accepts you just as you are because his righteousness covers you, that Jesus delights in you, but he doesn't leave us where Jesus desires to transform you. In areas to where the enemy has gotten a grip on us, Jesus wants to break us free from that so we can live for his glory. So what does the seventh commandment require? Quite simply, God calls us to rely on him rely on His grace to live a life of sexual purity and faithfulness for our own good and for the good of others. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess that this is a weighty subject matter. Where we confess that there's so much hurt and so much wounds that have happened to so many people's lives related to these type of sin areas. But Lord, we are thankful that you give 
more grace. That God, you give grace upon grace. And so, Lord, for the person who's sitting here today or who's watching online, Lord, who is battling temptation or finding just strongholds of these sins in their life, would you give them freedom today? Would you help them not just try harder, but would you let them find your grace to give them a way out? And I pray that this week they would find freedom that perhaps they've never experienced in their life. These chains of bondage and sin would be broken in their lives today. Or for the people who are here who have been really plagued with guilt for things in the past, Lord, I would pray they would see the beauty of being loved by you and forgiven by you. And they would realize those accusations are from the enemy. If you don't listen to them, why are we? And I pray you'll give them much grace this week. Or to not let the enemy keep bringing accusations of things that you've already forgiven them for. Lord, for the people who are dealing with much wounds and much hurt, Lord, I pray today that they would experience you holding them in new and deeper ways than ever before. That your word would be a comfort and a balm to their hurting soul. God, that you would let them see how faithful you are. And their hope wouldn't be in circumstances, but their hope would be in the faithfulness of their creator. And Lord, for all of us, Lord, whether it's this sin or other sins, Lord, we recognize that we live in a world where the enemy is throwing temptations at us and the world is throwing temptations at us, but worse than that, our own flesh wants so many of these things. So Lord, we ask for much grace for you to bind our hearts to you. Like the old hymn says, Lord, in this prayer, bind my wandering heart to thee. Lord, we confess our hearts are so prone to wander. It's not sexual sin, it's other sins in our life. Lord, you see how quick our, our hearts can wander. Lord, would you guard us from loving the things of the world? God, would you so anchor us, Lord, in our love for you that we see these temptations for what they are, that we see the world the, the way you see the world, and you would give us freedom and victory in Christ this day. And Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing a really a closing prayer of this to, to, by God to give us grace to build our lives according to his word. Be 
And Lord, that is our prayer, not just for today, but for all this week. God, you'd open up our eyes and wonder, God, would you let us see through your word how glorious and beautiful and holy and majestic and amazing you are. And God, I pray that would change how we see everything else. That you would lead us to love people around us. Not to try to use them, but to love them and point them to you and the hope in you. So would you give us much grace this week to transform our hearts as we meditate and think about your character, your nature. You'd be making us more and more into the image of Christ. And we ask it for your glory and for our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, Gateway family. Have a great Sunday afternoon.